Praise the Lord. You glad to be here this morning? I can give you a list of places a whole lot worse than this to be this morning. Praise God. Prison, hospitals, funeral homes, <laughs> you know, the IRS office, the DMV. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot of worse places to be, amen? We're so glad to be here this morning, and, and uh, we do just appreciate the Sexton family, and, and they, are, uh, they are covenant friends of my family and, and have been for, I guess, close to 30 years now. And, um, you know, my parents uh, just truly value your pastors, and I do too as well, and um, just thankful for them. And uh, I just want to get into the Word this morning, but before I do, I always want to recognize my wife. Um, She's been putting up with me for 16 years now, and, um, and I could not do what I do without her. And that's my beautiful wife, Mimi. Would you at least stand up and wave at everybody? Do you want to say anything this morning? No? Isn't she beautiful? I'm a good salesman, praise God. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. And I have two kids, Ethan, he's eight years old, sitting there by his buddy Aiden, and then there's Lila back there, she's five, and she's as shy as her mother is. And uh, yesterday, I suggested bringing Mila with us and leaving Ethan here, and, uh, and after the fun they've had this week, Mila's response was, me and Ethan's dreams would both come true. That's what she told me, so <laughs> didn't wasn't expecting that response, but, uh, but I think I'd probably load her up and take her with me if we could, so... Uh, but we do honor the Lord, and we, we honor your pastors. We honor just the, the heritage of faith that's in this house. And, um, you know, there, I think about it. You know, Brother Pastor Chuck's been pastoring here a long time, but, you know, his father established this ministry. And so there's, you know, and then I see uh, Clark stepping into the call on his life and, and, and Charla and Christy and, and just what God's doing in that family. And, and, um, and I believe that's what it should look like. Amen. I'm a third-generation preacher myself. My mother's father was a Southern Baptist preacher for over 50 years when he went to be with the Lord in 2008. Uh, he had been pastoring for over 50 years, one of the godliest men I ever knew. Uh, my father's in his 37th year of ministry now, and, uh, which just seems cra crazy to me. And, um, and then I I've, uh, started when I was 14 years old. Um, this is all I've ever known. And then uh, and in 2014, we launched into... Uh, full-time ministry in that capacity, and we've been traveling pretty extensively since then. And um, We live in East Tennessee now. We love it. We work for the ministry called River of Life Ministries. Uh, we have a town of a, less than 800 people in the town limits. We have a church of 200 people, right around 200 people, so um, that's pretty good for the size. We have a mega church we have in, our, in our town, and, um, <laughs> but we have 20 acres of land that they purchased a year and a half ago that we have uh, cleared and uh, or have started the pad. I think we went too small, so we're about to expand it more. And uh, in the next uh, couple of years, we're going to be building a sanctuary that will seat at least 600 people. And um, we're going to have a, a ministry training center, a youth center that we're building there as well. And then I'm also a staff minister for Noble Hayes Ministries. Anybody in here ever heard of Noble Hayes? Nobody has. Just a couple of people. Noble Hayes, he was, uh, he's 90 years old. In the, in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, he was... Uh, one of the leading voices in the Word of Faith movement, uh, his ministry is based in Cleveland, and I'm the director of their global campus, their Bible college, and I'm a staff minister for him as well. 
And um, so that all happened in the last just few months since we've been to Tennessee. And uh, so we're just excited about that season that we're in. Uh, I want to just bring a, a quick word to you. And I say quick, that's a relative term. We'll see how quick it is. Um, because I do want to just have time to minister as well this morning and just let the Lord do what he wants to do. Amen. How many of you just want God to do what he wants to do? Amen. And uh, if, if he's not here, we might as well just head to the house. Let's, let's go have lunch early. We'll beat the Baptists. We'll go have... <laughs> you guys have a lot of Baptists up here. I say Baptists because you shake a bush and three Baptists fall out in Tennessee. That's kind of why I say that. <laughs> our little town of 800 people, there's 30 Baptist churches in our county. 30. And, um, and that's from, you know, the huge churches on the side of the highway to backwoods mountain churches with seven people in them. Uh, but they all have Baptist in their name. That's just kind of where we are. And um, I, I have been going there for seven years, started going there in 2010. And we've seen, I mean, God do supernatural things in the time I've been going there. Uh, in 2014, we had a girl came in completely crippled and her feet were twisted and crippled. She walked out, ran out of the service that night. She's been healed ever since. Um, We've had meetings that lasted. I was in, I hold the record in that church for the longest service ever. We started at six. I walked out at midnight. Um, we prayed for people for four solid hours. Um, I prayed for people so long I couldn't put my arms down, my shoulders locked in place. That's a true story. Um, we've just had God do supernatural things. And then we've had things happen where I've experienced the most attack in that town of any place I've ever been. Uh, because people would come from the Baptist churches because, uh, I, I'll give you an example. We walked in the service one night. It's been about two or three years ago. And uh, for the first time, the pastor said, I've been pastoring here my whole life. It's, it's the town he was born and raised in. And he said, I've never seen this happen. We had seven different Baptist churches represented in one service in our sanctuary. And that had never happened there before. But what happened was there was a woman that came to a meeting one night and I called her out by a word of knowledge and God began to reveal things to me about a physical condition going on in her body. And, uh, and she, uh, it caused a restlessness. She couldn't sleep at night. And uh, so all night long, she would toss and turn and toss and turn. And the Lord showed me how long that had been going on and all these things. And I said, God's going to heal you tonight. And I said, and the sign to you is you're not going to want to get up in the morning. You're going to sleep all night long. And so the next morning, she slept through three alarm clocks. Well, she started calling everybody in her church. You got to go to church with me tonight. And told them exactly what happened. Well, they started calling other people. They started calling other people. And literally every chair they owned, they were going up, pulling out rusted metal chairs out of the attic and putting them in the sanctuary. We had about 230 or 40 people crammed in our little sanctuary that night. And God was moving. But then we had people that really got touched by the Lord. And then they would go back and tell their parents. We had one girl in particular sharing this with them uh, yesterday. Uh, when I went to pray for her, the Lord specifically told me. When I got to her, she was already shaking and trembling in the presence of the Lord. She didn't know what was happening to her. And the Lord told me, don't touch her. So I was standing from here to Josh. I never touched her. I just started prophesying over her. Well, when I finished prophesying, she just hit the floor, man. And... People ask me sometimes, why does that happen? I have no clue. I couldn't tell you um, why people fall out when you pray for them. I don't know. It happens a lot of places that I go. I've never been able to exactly explain why uh, other than 
I think it's just the yielding of ourselves to the presence of the Lord. And then I've had some tremendous encounters on the floor uh, throughout my lifetime. But why that happens, I don't know. But that girl hit the floor that night. Well, she goes home excited, tells her parents, this is what happened to me. He told me stuff about my life. I don't know this guy. And then when he finished praying for me, he never even touched me. And I just hit the floor and didn't know why. Well, her parents called the pastor and uh, told him what happened. Well, the next morning, they, they haul her into the pastor's office. They made her sit in front of a laptop for three hours watching YouTube videos of people being hypnotized and told her that's what I did to her. So now, when I walk into the place where she works, she goes to the back. She won't even talk to me because she's been told I put a, a spell on her. Uh, that's the kind of stuff in the, in the backwoods of the hills that we're still dealing with down there, praise God. And, uh, but God's moving sovereignly, and we're seeing God just grow our church and bless it, and, uh, and we're excited to be a part of that. Um, I want to just, I, I'm going to just give you guys a precursor. I, the, the message that I've brought this morning is going to challenge you a little bit, and I want everybody to know before I even get started that I love every one of you. And I mean that with all of my heart. I love you. I love God's people. I love the church. It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. I tell people, I meet pr prophetic people often that really have not really encountered the love of God like they should. And I, I remember I had an encounter with a man in Georgia a couple of years ago. Uh, and in this particular encounter, uh, he, uh, I had gotten up and I had judged a prophecy that was given. Uh, and I judged it as false. And, uh, and I announced to the people, and I didn't just go in and do that. I mean, but I, the Bible says that, that two should prophesy and the third prophet should judge. Is that scriptural? Amen. There's a lot of scholars in here, y'all. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, that word was given in a wrong spirit. So I called Dad. I talked to the pastor. Dad said, you got to correct it. It's going to bring confusion if you don't. So I talked to the pastor. I said, do you want to correct it? He said, no, you do it. And so I got up and did it. And um, so there was another guy that was in the room that was there that night, and so after the service was over, I walk up, and I'm, I'm social. I like meeting people. I walk around. I shake his hand. And the first thing out of his mouth to me was, if Ananias and Sapphira were standing in front of you, would you be afraid to give them the word of the Lord too? I said, okay, so we're going to do this right here in the sanctuary. I said, all right, I'm, 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 I just preached. I'm amped up. Let's, let's go, bro. Let's talk about this thing. Sure, let's talk about it. I said, uh, well, why do you ask me that? He said, well, you just made it impossible for God to rebuke these people. I said, no, I made it impossible for a rogue prophet that's not covered by anybody to walk in here and destroy this church. That's what I just did. I just came in as a prophetic minister in this church that I was the first prophet they'd ever brought into that church, and I established proper prophetic order so that you and your buddy can't come in here and cause damage and go on down the road, and your pastor's left picking up the pieces. And I said, in the difference, I said, an absolute, if Ananias and Sapphira were standing in front of me, I have no doubt I would give them the word of the Lord. I said, but the difference between me and you is I would do it with fear and trembling, weeping as I spoke it. You walk into every church you go to looking for who you can kill with the word of the Lord. And I said, so my recommendation to you, sir, is to go back to the cave you came out of and stay there till you learn how to love God's people. Well, he stormed right out of the church and didn't come back. I don't care. What I told him was true. And I get angry when I see prophets that come in and beat God's people because that's God's people he's talking to. 
And I tell people that. I tell prophet when I do any kind of prophetic training, I tell them the first thing you need as a prophetic minister is not just knowing how to hear from God. You need to know how to love God's people. You need to know that's God's bride you're talking to. And I'll tell you what, you can say whatever you want to about me, but when you come after Mimi, I'm going to become a completely different person. I'll fight to defend her to my death. Why? Because she's, she's part of me. She's my wife. She's my bride. I love her. I honor her. And it's the same way my children. You try to abuse my children, you're going to have your hands full with me. I'll become a different person. Why? Because it's my obligation as their father to protect and to cover them. To protect them. And that's how God feels about his people. So I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to challenge some people. I, and, if, and here's the thing. Here's what I'll say. If the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. But don't assume that the shoe doesn't fit. I would recommend let's do some Cinderella stuff in here. Let's try it on and see if it fits. Because if you do, I believe it will help us. Amen? So I'm just here to help. I'm here to help and love you and bless you. I, I, so just know that right up front. Everybody say with me. Josh loves me. All right, let's go. Praise the Lord. In Matthew, the 20th chapter, Lord, just help me to say this the way you want me to. Father, just be glorified in this room. We thank you for the worship. We thank you, Lord, that you've been exalted in this room. And Lord, we're not going to stop doing that now. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and exalted and magnified in this place. I thank you, Lord. We ask, God, even as, the, as the, the, the early church prayed, God, we pray, Lord, that you would, Lord, grant unto your servants that with all boldness they would speak your word. And I ask that you would stretch forth your hand and heal and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of your holy child, Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are able to do it. You haven't diminished in your power in any way. You're still working miracles. You're still setting captives free. Lord, you haven't stopped, Lord, and I thank you for it. I thank you that the power of the Holy Ghost is in this room right now. And I just pray, God, that we would be receptive, God, and that we, our response would be adequate. Our response, God, would, would, Lord, be proportionate to what you're requiring today. Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord. We love you. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Then he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? And they said unto him, Because no man has hired us. And he said to them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should receive more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, and saying, these, these last have wrought but one hour, 
And thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that as thine, and go that way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. It is, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with what is mine? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So shall the, the last shall be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. There's a story being pictured here and painted here by Jesus in this parable of a man who owns a vineyard, who goes out, and, and many of you know that the Jewish day does not begin at midnight like our day begins. The Jewish day begins at 6 o'clock in the morning. So from 6 to 6 is the Jewish day. And so when it says in the third hour, that was 9 o'clock in the morning. The sixth hour was 12 o'clock noon. So he's going out at 9 o'clock, at 12 o'clock, at 3 o'clock. And then he goes out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. He goes out at 5 p.m. And in every instance that he goes out, he finds men standing idle. And he tells them, why are you standing here this way? And their response to him was, no man has hired us. And I'm convinced that one of the greatest travesties we have facing the church in this hour is the abundance of idleness that has crept into the church. We are asleep at the wheel while the world is burning up around us. And the the word idle in the Hebrew and the Greek, I'm going to read some definitions to you and then I'll let you tell me if God looks at idleness with Positivity or negativity? It means to slack, to cease, to fail, to be faint, to be feeble, to forsake, to let alone, to be still, be slothful, to be weak. Does any of that sound positive to you? To be slothful and weak? One of the definitions that you find in the Greek, it's inactive, that is, by implication, unemployed, lazy, useless, barren. Does any of that sound good? No. God is addressing something here, and I believe He's addressing it with us. And I'm going to tell you guys something. If I've ever had a message that has dealt with me personally, it's the message I'm bringing to you this morning. And the thing is, we can look at our lives and people can look at me and say, idleness is not my problem. I'm busier than I've ever been. Well, so am I. I've never been any more busy than I am right now. I've got a ministry that I work for in Cleveland. I've got a local church that I'm very active in. I've got a wife and I've got kids that were homeschooling. I've got a son involved in sports. I've got all kinds of things going on. I'm busier than I've ever been. But in the midst of the busiest season of my life, the Lord has visited me and He has dealt with me about guarding my heart from idleness in my life. Because I'm telling you, in America, you can be the busiest you've ever been and be spiritually bankrupt. And in the generation that's coming on the scene now, they have the appearance of being very busy, but their life has no fruit to show for it. And so God is calling us. We've been called to be fruit-bearing branches of the vine. That's your job. I got news for you this morning. If I, could, if I could name this sermon, and I haven't, but if I was going to this morning, this is what it would be. You are hired. 
<laughs> you are hired this morning. If you don't think you have a purpose, I'm here this morning to tell you God wants to hire you. There is a divine purpose that needs to be accomplished. And I shared with you yesterday, the means that God chooses to use to do that looks like you and I. I had a man one time, I, I, when that little girl got healed, I shared this with, with them uh, th this past weekend, but when that little girl got healed, I went back to Florida and was sharing it with my coworkers about this girl getting this miracle. And I had a man that, that came to me and he said, hey, I'd like to go to lunch with you tomorrow. I'd like to talk to you about what you were talking to our boss about. I said, sure. So I'm thinking, hey, he's interested, he's curious, he wants to hear the story again. So we go to lunch the next day, and it, I found out rather quickly that was not his intention whatsoever. And he says, I heard you saying that. He said, you know, and I believe God can do anything. I believe God can heal people. I said, well, that's good because he didn't need your permission. And he said, I believe that. He said, here's my problem. I said, okay. He said, I just have a problem with God using you to do it. And it wasn't because I, he saw me living a double life. That's just the way he thought. And I said, well, I really confused him. I said, well, me too. It confuses me too. I don't understand it either. I said, I've been studying the Bible my entire life. I've read the Bible cover to cover. I don't know how many times as I don't count it. But I'm a student of the Word of God. And I said, one of the greatest mysteries I find in Scripture is that God chooses to use us. He's God. He can speak and the worlds are formed. By His Word, everything that we see consists by His spoken Word. He doesn't need me, but He chooses to use me. I said, all I can tell you is this. She came in crippled. God let me pray for her. I'm the one that felt her bones popping in my hands, and I felt the tendons stretching as I prayed for her. And all I can tell you is that she ran out of that building. Now, how that happened, God did it. I don't take any credit for it. I just happened to be the guy that God let hold her, hand, her feet in my hands when it happened. God chooses to express himself in the world through you. So we've got to constantly be looking at it, not in a way like I'm going to lose my salvation if I make a mistake. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about salvation or not salvation. I'm talking about living the overcoming life that Jesus said you could have right now today. The kingdom of God manifesting in every area of your life. And here's the thing. We're in a push at our church right now. God has dealt with us, and God began to speak to my pastor and I at the same time. And we began to hear the Lord saying that this was going to be the summer of harvest for our church. So we have mobilized an army of people in our church that are taking the gospel outside the four walls of our church. And guess what we're seeing? Lives are being changed and souls are being saved. It's an amazing thing that when you actually take the work of the kingdom outside of the four walls, because all this should be is an equipping station. The local church is a connection. It's the body of Christ coming together and fellowshipping absolutely. But that's the problem. We stop there. And if we stop there, then the church becomes a social club. And that is not what the church is meant to be. It's a place where you are prepared and equipped and trained to take what you learn outside the four walls of the church and actually change the world around you. You are the agent of change that God has put in your world. In the factory you work in, in the doctor's office that you go to, in Walmart or Kroger or wherever you do your grocery shopping, everywhere you go, the kingdom is wanting out. And I told them yesterday that we are the gateway that God is using to bring the expression of the kingdom in the earth. I know I yell a lot, and I'm not mad at you. It's just the way I preach. It's just 
fire that's down here, and I can't contain it. I try to teach. It just doesn't work. Even my teaching comes out like that. Praise God. But I fear, I fear that in the church we are walking around with this sense of unemployment. There are people living their lives walking around like they don't have a job to do. And we're content. Well, my kids are saved and my, my marriage is pretty good. We've got some money in the bank. And we think that makes it, that, that's, that's enough. And it's not enough. I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not enough. If your kids are saved, then start praying for somebody else's kids that aren't saved. We have a lady in our church, I mean, for years has been interceding for her kids and grandkids to be saved. I mean, years. Well, one by one, they've all started coming into the kingdom. And it's amazing watching it. The, 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 her granddaughter has reached out to Mimi. And her mother is, I mean, she's out there, man. And she's reached out to Mimi and said, can I just spend time with you? I just need somebody in my life that can help me. And Mimi's like, yeah, we'll do it. So we're going to be hanging out with her and just mentoring her and loving her because she came out of drugs into the kingdom and now she's trying to figure out what she's supposed to do. And so we're going to have her at our house, sitting around our table, just sharing the love of God with her and showing her how to live this life of overcoming victory that Jesus paid for. But this woman, she is the product of a grandmother crying out to God, Lord, save my family. Well, now she's getting what she's, required, what she's required of the Lord, what she's asked of the Lord. God, will you please give me my family? And she's getting it. But guess what? That woman's praying just as much today as she did before they were coming into the kingdom. But now she's praying for her friend's kids to get saved. Because it's not about just your family. It's about your community. It's about your extended family. It's about your brothers and your sisters. If you've been healed, start praying for your brother and sister to be healed. You've got a point of reference. You've got faith that you can believe God for healing if you've been healed. I don't have any problem believing God for healing. Why? Because I've been healed myself. I was telling him the other day, in 2008, I had asthma that had gotten so bad, I was doing a breathing treatment in the morning before I left the house. I would have to use an inhaler during the day, and then at night I'd have to do another breathing treatment just so I could sleep through the night. And I was living that way every day of my life in 2028 years old, and it was crippling my life. And a man of God in a meeting in our church in Virginia called me out in a meeting and said, God's going to heal you tonight. When he laid his hands on me, I felt fire go down in my lungs. I've never taken an inhaler another time since that moment. And I've shared with you, my dad has shared here, that at two months old, doctors walked in the room and told my parents, your baby is going to die in two days. There's nothing else we can do. I was two months old, and I weighed, I was under seven pounds when I was born. By the time I was two months old, I was weighed way less than that because I had a birth defect, and I could not keep any nutrients in my body. Anything that went in my stomach would either come straight back up and projectile vomit or pass straight through my bowels. I was starving to death, and they couldn't figure out why. So two days before Christmas, they walk in and tell my parents, your baby will be dead by Christmas. We're sorry, there's nothing else we can do. And that night, a lady walked in the room who worked at the hospital in Lynchburg General Hospital, Lynchburg, Virginia. My mother was in there holding me, and a lady walks in the room and says, I work here at the hospital. God spoke to me as I was working tonight and said, your baby is dying, and God wants to heal him. She took my, the, me from my mother's arms and began to pray over me. She began to pray in the spirit over me, which my mother did, had never experienced. She thought she was praying in Chinese over me. Because at that time, she was just a good little Southern Baptist girl, praise the Lord. 
And she said, this boy is going to be a preacher of the gospel. And she prophesied the calling on my life. And she said, and I see him running through a field on two strong, healthy legs. Well, the next day I began to drink milk. I depleted the breast milk bank at Lynchburg General Hospital by myself. That's a true story. They, had to read, they ran an article on the front page of the newspaper with my picture on it saying, we need breast milk. And women came from a 100-mile radius of Lynchburg, Virginia to bring milk to me to keep me alive. God healed me. Then as I got older, the whole strong, healthy legs made more sense because my right foot began to turn inward. And by the time I was three years old, it was almost backwards on my leg. And God instantly healed it. No cast, no breaks, nothing. God healed it in front of my lost grandfather who the next Sunday got saved. So you can't convince me God doesn't heal because I'm standing here because God heals. Doctors couldn't help me, but I'm still here 36 years later. Why? Because God is a healer. How could I not tell the world my God heals? I was bound in addictions to pornography and all sorts of ungodly things that were trying to ruin my life and God came and delivered me. How could I not tell people God delivers? How could I not tell people that my God is a Savior, that my God is a Redeemer? When I had five preachers tell me my marriage was over, five. My marriage got so bad that five preachers said, we really don't know what else to tell you. You're young enough. We think you probably just need to call it quits and start over. Is that true? Five preachers told us that. I mean, it was hopeless in every possible way. And then God came in and sovereignly began to move in my heart and her heart toward one another. And we fell in love with each other again. And here we are all these years, 14 years later, more in love than we've ever been in our whole lives. Because God is a redeemer. How could I not tell people about that? How can I not let people know that God can save your marriage? How can I not let people know that God, you don't have to stay bound in addiction. God can set you free. How could I not tell someone that? But we walk around and we ignore what's going on around us as long as we're good. We think that's enough. And God didn't leave you here so that you could be good. God left you here to change the world around you. And i got news for you in the kingdom world. And I love kingdom churches, but we've got to get outward thinking in the way we think. We have to. It's not enough to come in here and get more revelation and more revelation if it all stays in here. You know, the Dead Sea is dead because water comes in, but nothing ever goes out. So life can't be supported there because they've got water feeding into it. Salt water comes in, but there's no outlet to let it out. And so the water, the salt just builds and builds and nothing can live in it. And it's the same way in your spiritual life. We are called to release what God... Jesus said this, and, and I know this is too basic, but I, I'm telling you, God's bringing us back to the foundational. In my generation, I'm surrounded by a bunch of young preachers. They've got to have a new revelation every week, Pastor Chuck. The new revelation that I got this week from God and what they're creating and what they're preaching, they can't back it up with Scripture. It just sounds good. And I'm telling you, and this is the message I've been declaring to a lot of people, and they don't like me for it. I've been telling them, listen, the, 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 the new way you're looking for is hidden in an ancient pathway. God's not calling you to reinvent the gospel. He's telling you to go back and rediscover the gospel and then preach what the apostles preach. If it worked for them, it'll work for us. I read the book of Acts, and I'm reading where they go out and they heal every sick person. Everyone. 
They're casting demons out of many and healing every sick person that's brought to them. And then you read where Paul, it says about Paul that unusual miracles were worked at the hands of Paul. I don't even know what that means. Because Peter and John are raising up, I mean, dead people and crippled people, and they're seeing all kinds of stuff happen, demons being cast out. And then they actually specifically say about Paul, unusual miracles are worked at the hands of Paul. I wish I could have been there to find out what that looked like. Any miracle is unusual to me. I mean, it's amazing. We were in a meeting Monday night. We had a guy from Alabama preaching at our church. And, I mean, he just started getting words of knowledge. And instead of having a prayer line for him praying, he said, no, you're going to pray for one another. And we had three deaf ears open in one night. And I understand that that should be normal Christianity, but it's still it's amazing to me. I understand, you know, when people say, well, this should be normal every day. I agree with that. But, man, I believe we ought to be like the one leper that came back and said, thank you, Jesus. That's amazing. People came in deaf and went home hearing. That's amazing. My friend had, has had three knee surgeries on his knees. He's younger than I am. And in 2001, he had his first knee surgery. He has not had full extension of his knee since then. His knee will not straighten all the way. His leg stays like this all the time. It stays bent all the time. I mean, three guys got around him and laid hands on his knee. He said he felt fire go down in his knee, and he showed me the next day. I mean, he was bending his leg all the way back. And the next day he said, man, my leg is really hurting. But then he realized, hey, that's not my knee. That's my calf. My calf's being stretched because I haven't been able to stretch my leg in, in over 10 years. That was on a Monday night meeting. God wants to do that here. You've got to believe that, church. And here's the thing. Here's the message that I carry. It's a sound of awakening. I've, hear, I've come to sound an alarm. Wake up. God wants to use you. We've, we've created this thing in the church world today where we've divorced the person up here from the people out there. So the people out there count on everybody up here to do everything, and that is not God's plan. God's dealing with that. The one-man show, superstar Christianity, you just keep watching the, the, the news media, you just keep watching Christian television and these things and, and, and reading these reports. I'm telling you, I prophesied this three years ago. No, seven years ago. I had an encounter with an angel of the Lord, and the Lord revealed to me then that there was a mirror of truth being released in the earth. There were going to be a lot of men and women of God that would behold themselves in it. They would refuse to repent for the idolatry in their life, and they were going to fall, and many would scatter. And I'm telling you, since I released that word seven years ago, one after another, I'm watching big-name preachers, personality-driven ministries, falling one by one, one by one. And it's not because I want that to happen. It's because they refuse to deal with themselves. And God is dealing with the one-man show superstar Christianity. That is not God's model. That is not God's plan. He wants a, a, an army mobilized in the world to bring the kingdom of God into your world. Jesus worked more miracles outside the temple than he did in the temple. He brought the manifestation of the kingdom everywhere that he went. What did the kingdom look like? Well, it looked like this. When he went into a city, he would leave and there would be no sick people. It's true. Just read the Gospels if you don't believe me. It's true. Demon-possessed people encountered Jesus and they didn't stay demon-possessed. Why? Because he had authority. He brought the authority of the kingdom to his world. And it's easy to say, well, we're kingdom people, but does that, is that manifesting in your life? That's the question that I think that all of us really need to ask ourselves and ask the Lord. 
Is my life reflecting the dominion of your kingdom in every area of my life? And if the answer is no, don't be condemned. Repent and ask God to help you. But don't assume. Don't assume that you're doing everything right. I know I've battled that because, and I told him yesterday, I had a time in my life, I was very gifted, but I had no character and I thought God was okay with me because I could still prophesy and I could still see things that happen in the spirit. And I thought that meant God was okay with me. And guess what? I found out pretty quickly that is not what that meant at all. Check this out. I really messed with somebody's theology. There was a season of my life I was so bound up in addiction, I never went outside the church. I never backslid. I mean, like left church, said, I'm, I'm washing my hands in church. I'm never. I was in church every Sunday, leading worship, preaching under the anointing, prophesying the pain off your walls. I mean, I would tell you when, I mean, when specific times in your life things happened to you. That's how accurate the word of knowledge was in my life. And I'm telling you, there was a season in my life I was still doing all this ministry stuff, and if I'd have died on the way home from that meeting, I'd have gone to hell. Well, it always gets quiet when you start talking like that because people think, well, I'm gifted. I'm prophesying. I'm faithful to the church, and that's enough. It's not enough. God gave me that gift, and he won't take it away. You know, it's amazing. Saul is a great example of a king who was anointed to be king. God let him work for over 20 years and had lifted the anointing off of him. I've heard it said this way, God's the only boss that will let you keep working, and he'll fire you and let you keep working. His hand is not, and, and these things, these signs will follow them that believe, absolutely, and he'll work signs and wonders for the preaching of the gospel, absolutely, but that doesn't make the messenger right. In your heart. We've got to live our lives continually seeking God and searching. You know, I love that David said, search me. And I ask this question often, but, you know, when's the last time you let God do that in you? When's the last time you got alone with God, which is something most people have trouble doing because we're busy, busy, busy. When's the last time you got alone with God? You took your heart out of your chest and laid it on an altar and said, God, search this thing. Is there anything in this that you don't like? He's the lover of your soul. I don't want to do anything to disappoint my wife. Do I? Sure, but I don't want to. Why? Because she's my wife. I love her. I want her to be satisfied in me and me only. Hello? And our approach to God needs to be the same way. Lord, is there anything inside of me that when you look at it, it hurts your heart? And we need to be quiet long enough to let him speak to us. We're busy. And this is how we approach God. God, thank you for this day. God, thank you for this food. God, thank you for the good day I had. Good night. And that's how we approach God. And that is not going to carry you in the hour of shaking that's coming upon the earth. We passively approach God. I was at a church recently, or it's been a couple of years ago now. I was at a church, and I was watching as people came in. And I'm going to say this quickly. I have no problem with what I'm about to say as long as it's done the right way. But I'm watching people. They come into church that Sunday morning, and they come in. They're getting their coffee and their donuts, and they're enjoying their time of fellowship. But then when it came time to worship, they still have their coffee and donuts in their hands, and there's no engagement. Then I'm watching a worship team up there just trying to plow through, I mean, mud up to their knees, trying to get people in the throne room of God because people didn't come to engage. God. They came to engage one another. 
So here I am, a prophetic guy they brought in, and they said, Is any, any of you guys, it was me and three other prophets there, they said, Do any of you guys have anything you want to say? I said, I do. And I could tell the pastor was like, oh, Okay. Because I had this look on my face, because I'm going to be honest with you, I got a little upset. So I took the microphone and I said, Thank God for your donuts. Thank God for your coffee. Thank God you're here to see one another. But we're here to engage Him. Why are you here? We're here to engage Him. We're here corporately to lift up worship and adoration and praise to the God of heaven. That's what you're here for. You can hang out at the restaurant after. We're here to engage the king. Let me tell you something. When the king walked in the room, everybody hit their knee. You bowed yourself in obeisance to... I mean, you were... The king came in, you humbled yourself. And if you didn't, in the Old Testament days, if you didn't, guess what happened to you? You died. You were taken right out and killed on the spot. You, you honored the king. You honored the authority of the king. And I'm afraid that we've gotten so... We don't approach God that way. We've lost the reverential fear of God in the church. We've just painted this picture of God. And, and the picture of Jesus is being painted in the next generation. I shudder to think... Because I look at how they're painting this picture of Jesus, that Jesus is this cool, hip guy that just thinks everybody's great and God's okay with everything. Just try your best, man. God's with you. It's okay, man. And they have no fear of God. They don't understand the severity of God, that God hates sin. They think they can stay keep with their sin. The blood of Jesus already took care of that. I can stay in sin. It's okay. I was sitting with a man recently, and he is in a hyper-grace church, and I found that out quickly. I didn't know that, but it didn't take long to find out. When he found out I was a preacher, he says, you know there's a scripture that says that once you're born again, no sin will ever be held against you, ever again. I said, really? He said, yeah, do you know where that scripture is? I said, no. I don't think I can find that. I don't remember that one. I said, do you know where it is? He said, no, I'd have to look it up. He brought it up. He didn't even know where it was. But his pastor told him that, and he just believed it. And then the next thing out of his mouth was my friend that was a mutual friend that I was there with. I wasn't there for him. I was there with my friend. He says to my friend, so that means we can have a beer later. God already knows we're going to do it. So just go ahead and do it, man. This is literally, this man is not a, a 16-year-old saying, come on, man, everybody else is doing it. This guy's in his late 50s telling my friend, that means we can have a beer later, man. You can just do whatever you want. God, this is literally what he said. You can do whatever you want. God already knows you're going to do it. And I'm thinking, really? What Bible do you read? The grace of God broke the power of sin over me. It didn't make it so that I can stay in sin. It means I can live free from sin. There's the grace that saved me. Then there's the grace that empowered me. I don't have to live captive to sin another day. You don't have to. How dare we, we negate the power of God, that he was, he was weak, that he, he just broke the power of sin a little bit. No, he broke the power of sin so that you can walk in dominion, not so you can stay in sin. Of course not. But that's what we've made it in the church today. I know this is hard, but I'm not mad at you. I love you. Luke chapter 12 says this. I'm going to read another parable to you real quick. So you're hired. Everybody know that now. You're hired. You have a job to do. God saved you for a divine purpose. 
in the eternal knowledge of God, God knew that a day was going to come where your mother and father were going to have a baby and it was going to look like you. Isn't that wonderful? God knew you. Before you were in your mother's womb, the Lord knew you. In the eternal knowledge of God, He knew you by your name. Amen? That should be good news for you. The Bible says that my days are written in His book. He knows the number of my days already. That's good news. While I was in my mother's womb, He knew I was going to be standing here talking to you today. How? Because He's God. That's how. You're here for a divine purpose. You're here for a divine destiny that only you can fulfill. God has a plan for you. And it's not about you. It's about Him. But He wants to use you. <laughs> Amen? I know this is too simple, but I'm just trying to re- just encourage you. You need to be reminded that you're here for a purpose. But I'm going to read you some verses to you right now that are going to stretch you a little bit because they stretched me. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 says, And one of the company said to him, Master... Speak to my brother, he divide the inheritance with me. And if you back up a verse, what he's saying is, this man comes to Jesus, because Jesus is a rabbi, he's a leader, he's a, he has authority. So this man comes to Jesus and he says, I've got a piece of land that my brother and I have together, and I want to sell it, and he doesn't. And I want the inheritance, and he doesn't want me to have it. So Jesus, I need you to tell my brother to sell this land with me so that I can get what belongs to me. And what was Jesus' response? He said, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, and I want you to hear these words, because these words have been just, I mean, dealing with me for a long time now. He said, take heed. Now, if Jesus says take heed, I believe it might be something we ought to pay attention to. Jesus didn't just say it. He literally said, you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say to you. Take heed. And beware of covetousness. Now, covetousness... I don't know if y'all know this, but it's one of the big ten. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's tractor, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's whatever. You're not to covet those things. You're not to want those things for yourself. That's a word we don't talk about much, covetousness. It's one that we kind of bypass and overlook. But Jesus said, take heed, beware of covetousness, which is measuring yourself by somebody else and wanting what they have for your own. And here's something that will liberate somebody if you'll let it. This is what he said. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. That verse right there goes so far against the grain of American Christianity, it's not even funny. Can I tell you today, and listen, I'm going to say this quickly. God has no problem with you having stuff. God has no problem with you having nice things, whatever. I like nice things too. Absolutely. I love my wife having nice things. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's not covetousness. As long as I don't, I'm not mad because you have something that I want. One of the greatest tests of of your heart is when someone else gets what you've been praying for. I've had over 100 prophecies, a prophet to the nations, God's going to... I've had five different words in the last two years, God's going to put you on television, and I'm in the midst of all that. I've had these words, and everybody around me is being promoted to that level, and I'm standing over here just like, okay, Lord. And there was a time in my life when I would be like, God, what about me? Now I'm like... Praise God. You have a message the world needs to hear. I'm learning how to be 
content with where I am and to celebrate other people's successes. I know that sounds too simple, but man, we need to learn that. We need to learn to celebrate with one another. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Mourn with those that mourn. Beware of covetous, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. That should liberate you, husband. I didn't think I had a problem with this until we're living in a 900-square-foot house and my brother-in-law builds a 5,000-square-foot house for a family that doesn't need it. The house they have was fine, but it wasn't big enough for them. And I realized pretty quickly, I've got some stuff i got to work on. Can I just be real with you? I see the pictures and I'm like, oh, good for them. God, when? I can't even turn around in my bedroom. Literally, I have to climb over the bed to get in bed. And in the morning, I have to climb over Mimi. I have to, like, without waking her because there's no room to even walk around. I have to move things out of the way to open the bottom drawer of my dresser because my bed is, bedroom is so small. And you see people getting things, and if you're not careful, you'll start coveting those things, and you're going to lose the contentment and the peace of God in wherever you are. And he tells him here, your life does not consist of those things. They don't mean anything. At the end of your life, God's not going to look at you and say, good job getting that house, good job. No, he's going to say, what would you do for me? It's eternal things that carry weight with God, not your temporal things. And there's nothing wrong with having things, but here's the problem. When you live to the max of your means and go beyond your means because you want to keep up with everybody else, you're living in covetousness. You know what my vacations look like? We go up to the waterfall about seven miles from my house. I take my kids to the neighbor's pool let them swim in it. Why? Because I don't feel the need to spend $10,000 on Disney every year. I don't have it. I don't need to do it. My brother-in-law does it every year. Good for them. Do I feel like I have to do that because they do? No. I know this is way too practical, but God's trying to liberate you. Because we put ourselves under so much pressure. Well, I've got to have the best vacation. I've got to have the best this and the best that. And we think that that represents the kingdom. No, what you do with your conduct represents the kingdom. You can be blessed. You can have money. There's nothing wrong with that. But you're not going to take it with you. It's something your kids can fight over when you're gone. I mean, we live that life. My parents don't have a large pension laid up somewhere. My parents don't have a million dollars in a retirement account somewhere. But you know what I've inherited from my parents? Faith. Faith. If my dad right now died, which he's not going to in Jesus' name, but if something happened to my parents, we don't have lots of assets to split up between me and my two brothers. We don't have lots of things to split and fight about. But what I've got is when God required me to take the largest step of faith I've ever taken in my life, I had a point of reference from parents who gave away every earthly possession we knew to move out on a word from God. So when God told me to do it, it wasn't that hard. You want to know why? Because I have a heritage of faith. I have an inheritance. And Jesus said that you're laying up for yourself an inheritance that the moth can't eat, the rust can't corrupt, and robbers can't steal. A crown of righteousness is waiting for you. 
Now, the Bible also says that a wise man lays up an inheritance for his children's children. So I'm not saying you shouldn't be wise and frugal and use wisdom in your business and all those things. I'm not saying that whatsoever. I'm just saying that those things can't motivate you. They can't become the thing that drives you in your life. Amen? I've got friends that, that feel called to ministry. They want to travel. They want to do these things. And they want to do the, you know, they, they, they're saying, oh, I want to be this. I want to be that. But they've gotten themselves under such a mountain of debt. There's no possible way. There's no way. I've got friends right now that feel called in the mission field and they want to go and sell everything and go. They can't. Because they made decisions. They, they were wanting to be like everybody else. I'm just being honest with you. We've got to let him be the Lord of all or not Lord at all. That means he gets to touch your check account. He gets, he gets to, to touch your marriage. He gets to touch everything. There's nothing off limits to him. And I'm not saying this so I can take up an offering. Y'all don't freak out. I don't take up offerings. Keep your money. I'm not asking for that. I'm just saying, because I can tell when I go to certain places, they get when you start talking about stuff like that, like, oh, he's about to take up an offering. Here it comes. It's not what I'm about to do. <laughs> don't worry. Don't freak out. But your life, that's what we measure ourselves by. That's not how God measures your life. A man's life does not consist by what you possess. It consists by how you live your life, how you love your wife, how you love your kids. I've got a lot of friends, and you know what I ask them? I don't ask, how's your ministry doing? I have a lot of ministry friends, young guys my age, have kids my, my kids' age. And when we talk on the phone, which we do on a regular basis, I don't ask them, oh, how's the ministry going? How many meetings do you have coming up? You know what I ask them? How's your wife? How are your kids doing? I got a good friend who was traveling all the time, and God spoke to me and said he's gone too much. I called him. I said, hey, man, what are you doing? Well, I'm busier than I've ever been. I said, yeah, but when do your kids see you? Well, we make it work. When do your kids see you? He couldn't answer me. I love the fact that when I was 12 years old, my dad, who made a living on the road traveling, preaching my whole life, was on his way to Pennsylvania to preach for Pastor Paul, friend. And the Lord spoke to him driving down the interstate and said, turn around and go home. And my dad's driving, arguing, God, I can't do that. They've advertised the meetings. They expect me to be there today. I've got to preach tomorrow. We can't do that. And the Lord said, what good is all of this if your sons go to hell? So my dad stops at a payphone, calls Pastor Paul. This is how the conversation went. Pastor Paul, friend, who God has used strategically through our whole life, picks up the phone, doesn't even say hello. This is how the conversation went. Brother Rodney, yeah, it's me. Turn around and go home. So my dad turned the car around, halfway from Tennessee to Pennsylvania, turns around, comes home, and doesn't travel but maybe once or twice a year for six years. Was an elder in the church, started selling real estate. God blessed our socks off in that season. We hunted, we fished, we spent time together. He was at every baseball game we played. He was at everything we did. He invested in me and my brothers. And guess what? At 14, I was already preaching the gospel. Why? Because he made that decision. Then when he started traveling, guess who was with him? This guy, everywhere he went. I didn't preach. I ironed his pants and made sure he had water to drink. That's what I did. I carried his Bible. I carried his briefcase. He never picked his Bible up until he went to the pulpit. Why? Because I was there to serve him. Why? Because it was in my heart to do that. I honored him. And because of that, he developed me into the man of God that I've become today, whatever that looks like. 
I give my parents credit because my dad didn't measure himself by everybody else. He said, no, I'm going home. I'm going to raise my kids. Amen? This is practical. I'm almost done. So he says, these things are not, your life isn't measured by these things. I want to read this, this parable to you. He says this. He says, he spoke a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And then he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and I will build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and all of my goods. And this is what he says to himself in Luke chapter 12, verse 19. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He gave himself a way out. He gave himself a break. You've done enough. You've done enough. You know, it's interesting, Joshua... When he goes into Canaan, they fight from the day they walk over. I mean, they walk over looking at Jericho. And it was one battle after another after another. I referenced this yesterday, but I didn't say this part. You know, he, in the chapter 12 of Joshua, it goes through all the kings they destroyed. 31 kings they had fought and won. They've been fighting since they got there. And then God speaks to Joshua. The Lord comes to Joshua, and this is what he says. He says, Joshua... What are you doing? There's 12 tribes in Israel, and by that time, only five had received their inheritance. He said, you still got all this land yet to conquer, but they've been fighting since they got there. So this is what he does. He calls all the people of Israel to Shiloh, and this is what Joshua says to them. How long are you going to be slack to go possess the land that God has given you? Now, their response to Joshua could have easily been, Joshua, we've been fighting since we got here. We've got 31 dead kings in our wake from what we've done since we've been here. But his response to them was, how long are you going to be slack to take the rest? And what was happening is all the 12 tribes of Israel had found contentment living in one little corner of God's promised land when God said, I've laid out all of this for you. And guess what? Joshua went out and spent several years laying out the lines of demarcation for the rest of the inheritance for Israel. But guess who had to go get it? Israel did. When we get up and preach these kinds of messages, I'm drawing lines of demarcation. I'm showing you there's an inheritance you've been given in Christ that you get to walk in. But guess what I can't do for you? Make your decision. And guess who else can't? God. That's a sobering thing when you think about it. God spoke to me several years ago. He said, I can do it. There's a lot of things I can't do and people love to preach about. I can't fail or lie or sin. He said, well, there's one thing that people neglect. I said, well, Lord, what is it? He said, I can't make your decision. And guess what? Indecision is still a decision. (laughs) And just because we bury our heads in the sand and we act like things are great in the world around us, it doesn't mean they are. And my prayer is that we will engage this thing before the battle shows up at our doorstep. Don't wait until the enemy comes to steal everything you've got and then turn to God. No, let's actively engage in this thing now. Amen? I know it's late. I've been preaching a long time. But listen to me. God wants more for you. 
Can I prophetically declare to you as much as you know there's more? Can I declare to you no matter how much great teaching you've sat under, there's more? Can I tell you that today? And the resounding theme of everywhere I go, I tell people I've come with a prophetic word and everybody wants one, so get ready, write it down, get your pen ready. This is what I say. I've got a long prophecy for everybody in the church. Everybody ready for it? Grow up. (laughs) He's calling you to maturity. He's calling us to get beyond ourselves and say, God, use me for the world. And you can do it. How do I know? Because God's with you. What can stand against you? And we say these things and we sing songs about them, but they become cliches to us, but they mean something. If God is for you, who or what could ever be against you? I want these scriptures to pierce your heart today because we've been singing these songs my whole life. You know the songs, I mean, back in the old days, the 80s, it was all about warfare, it was all about, I mean, we, that's what we sang for years and years, all about battle and war and God's force and God is with us. You know, I can blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. We sing those kinds of songs my whole life, and I've heard preacher after preacher after preacher declare these things. Now they're on coffee mugs, and now they're the backdrop of your computer screen. We, we've made a fortune on these things, but they become, they lose their potency, they lose their power in your life. If God is for you, nothing can be against you greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world those words mean something greater is he that's living in me than he that's in the world so no matter what I face whether it be a bad diagnosis or a bad marriage or whatever it is children not doing right whatever it is or uncertainty of my job or uncertainty of the future whatever it is it's not greater than the one that's living in me Nothing's greater than Him. And I told you yesterday that when we activate these things by faith and we step out on the Word of God, all of heaven will back you. All of heaven backs what you do and say when you align yourself with the Word of God. But I want to encourage you, men of God especially, you don't have to put yourself under that kind of pressure. Don't do it. Don't think that your family has to have what every other family has. You'll be okay. Your kids will live. I played with sticks for guns. Come on. I had to do something that my kids don't have to do. I had to use my imagination. My parents would go out and they would park the cars one in front of the other so we could play police chase. Oh, we did, man. Like a stunt movie. I mean, there would be a car here, the other car behind it, the bad guys in the front, good guys in the back, and the good guys were hanging out the window shooting the car in front of me. That's what we did. You, you had to use your imagination. And God forbid we had to go play outside. Your kids will be okay. I remember when I was launching out into the traveling ministry and, and we had just enrolled Ethan in a Christian school and spent a lot of money to get him in there, which they didn't give back to me. And I gave them that money, and all they did was just put his name in a computer. But whatever. Anyway, God bless them. And, but I gave it to them, and all in the effort to have, let Ethan have a normal life. That's what I was saying, because I knew God was calling me on the road. I knew it. I felt it. 
Everything was changing, and I was justifying it 50 different ways. Well, he's going to have a good education, a Christian education, all these different things. And I'm walking the floor one night, and, man, I'm wrestling. And what I didn't know for two weeks, Mimi was wrestling with it. She didn't say anything. And I'm walking the floor one night just praying. And I said, Lord, I'll answer this call but I want my kids to have a normal life. That's what I said. And it was coming from a sincere place in my heart as a father. I said, Lord, I want my kids to have a normal life. And this is what the Lord spoke to me, Pastor Chuck. He said, what was your normal? What did normal look like for me? Well, normal for me was the little boy that wasn't playing in the back when dad was preaching. I was the one he would call up when he was praying for the sick. And at eight, nine years old, I was holding the microphone so dad's hands could be free to pray for the sick. That was my normal. We spent hours and hours in the car traveling from one place to another. And the Lord said, but it changed your life. It made you who you are. Why would you want anything different for Ethan? And I decided that night, we're going to redefine normal in my generation in Jesus' name. So I go to work the next day, and I'm just wrestling with it. I'm trying to work, and I can't concentrate. I text Mimi and said, babe, she texts me back. She said, thank God. She said, I've been feeling it for two weeks, but I didn't want to say anything. She said, I'm going to withdraw it, and we'll start looking at curriculums today. We've been homeschooling our kids ever since. I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm just saying I didn't feel I had to let go of the pressure that he had to have this and had to have that. And my kids don't want for anything. They got clothes on their backs. We might go to the consignment store, but my wife would do that anyway. When I made $115,000 a year, she still went to the consignment store. Praise God. God wants to liberate his church. And I'm telling you, it's going to take this kind of preaching to liberate the American church. I wish I could just get up here and just give you flowery beds of ease kind of sermons, but that's not going to wake the Church of America up. It's just the truth. It just isn't going to work. We're so married to the American dream, the land of possibilities, and it is, but man, let's use it for the kingdom. We have the power to impact the world. Do you know that there are Christians in China praying for America today? The Christians in China intercede daily for America. And when you ask them why, their answer is simple. Because as America goes, so goes the world. So there are Christians in China praying for you. Praying for me. To what? To wake up. And to be the people that God's called us to be. There's a divine mandate from God on your life. And you might say, well, I'm not a speaker. I'm not this. I'm not that. You don't have to be. God, the Bible says, He takes the simple things, the foolish things to confound the wise. You don't have to have a pedigree. Guys, my mom made my diploma on a printer. I run a Bible college, and I, don't, I have no college education whatsoever. I've just been studying the Word of God my whole life. I am a student of the Word of God. I love it. I eat it breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I do. I'm not saying that in a haughty way. I genuinely love the Word of God. I love it. And because of it, it becomes alive to me, and God's put me in a position. I've been in instances in the last two years, I look around the room, which fulfills prophecy over my life. I'm looking around the room thinking, how in the world? I was doing a prophetic presbytery in Roanoke, Virginia. I'm sitting in the room, the conference room before service starts. I'm looking around the conference table. I've got the the former uh, dean or the former president of Elam Bible College on my left, I've got the dean of the Theological Seminary of Regent University on my right, and then there's me. 
That doesn't make any sense. And the guy from Regent looks at me and says, you didn't go to college, did you? We had only met 10 minutes. I'm like, Lord, what did I say? I'm going through my mind. I'm like, Yuns, I didn't say Yuns. I didn't live in Tennessee then. <laughs> I did not say Yuns. And, uh, and I just said, no, sir, I didn't. He said, I can tell. <laughs> Serious, that's how it went. I just kind of hung my head. And he could tell it, like, discouraged me because I was like, what did I say? And, he, and this is what he said to me. He said, don't. This guy makes a living running a theological seminary at Regent University. And I look, this guy has got two PhDs. And I said, why not? And he said, because I've spent 30 years in a classroom trying to teach young men how to do what you're already doing. Don't waste your time. He said, now, if you want to get a degree to help you further yourself on the mission field, he said, that makes sense to me. He said, but don't do it because you feel like you need it. Man, I, I, I could have just run through the wall at that point. I'm like, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. One of the most humbling moments of my life. You don't have to have all that. You just have to have a heart and a passion. Say, God, here I am. Use me. Here I am. Whatever you can take, take it. Whatever you can use, use it. And I'll, I'll answer. I'll answer. Yes. Yes. Here's where the rubber is going to meet the road. I don't know how many times when I was growing up, I would go to the special meetings every year. In the Baptist church, they call it revival. A week-long revival every, every year. And we had those, they trickled over into the Pentecostal churches I grew up in too. And we'd have special meetings every year. And every year, that was the time of year, you would go to the front. I don't know if anybody else ever had these, but you would go to the front, whether it be at youth camp. I did it at youth camp every year too. I would go to the front and I would rededicate myself to the Lord. Make a fresh dedication. Yes to the Lord. Yes to you, Lord. And how many times have you said that? How many of you have ever said that? You've gone, maybe you've answered an altar call, or you, in some way, you've said, Yes, Lord. Maybe that was the altar call. Let's just all come forward to just declare, Yes, yes to you, Jesus. How many of you have ever done that? There's hands going up. I have too. But then my life didn't change. You want to know why? Because I was quick to say yes to Jesus and slow to say no to myself. <laughs> And it's got to be a two-step process. You'll hear the word today, and, you'll, and maybe something will burn in you. Maybe you don't like me at all. I don't know. That's up between you and God. Maybe you don't like this message whatsoever, but hopefully somebody in here is piercing your heart, and you're going to say, God, I believe what he's saying is true. I want you to use me. But then when you walk out of here, you're going to have to swallow your pride. You're going to have to say no to your desires. There's going to be times that it might require more. just the way it is. When the doors of our church are open, you want to know who's there? This guy. I'm just going to be real with you guys this morning. I don't find 50 reasons why I can't be there. Why? Because I'm hungry. And hungry people eat. Hungry people eat. If you're hungry, you'll eat. I know this is tough. God's trying to help us. If you're starving, you'll steal if you have to to eat. The problem we have in America is we're not hungry. And the reason for it is we're full of ourselves. 
I'm preaching to myself, I know. But man, when you're hungry, you can't keep me away. Mm-mm. No. I don't want to miss what's going to happen. It's not religion, like, oh, you've got to be there. There's no got to about it. I want to be there. I want to. And I got to, I'm going to just going to help somebody this morning. My son plays sports. He's actually pretty good. He played baseball this year. He made all-star team his first year ever playing baseball. They told us, well, we got some tournaments coming up, and if we keep going, they're going to be playing on Sunday morning. I said, my son won't. Well, what about commitment to team? We're committed to the Lord. I'm just being honest with you. He'll play Saturday night till midnight. We'll rush home. That's fine. He'll commit every, but Sunday morning is the, that's the time my family's going to, my son at eight years old will not have an understanding that baseball comes before the Lord. It's not going to happen. Because if I don't prioritize the Lord now in his life, when he gets to make his own decisions, we are naive if we think our kids are going to make that decision for themselves. We've got kids in our church. We've got parents in our church. They've got teenagers that don't ever come to church. They live in their house and eat their food. I'm sorry, what? That was Rodney, specifically. Because I grew up hearing, if you're going to live in my house and eat my food, you're at church on Sunday morning. There was never a discussion it wasn't, hey, it's Sunday morning. You're going to go to church today? It was, get your butt out of bed. It's Sunday morning. What do you think you're doing? You know there's church today. Now, our church in Homewell growing up was awesome because they had church at 3 in the afternoon, so I could still sleep in. It was great. But even if we didn't, my hind end was at church. Why? Because there was a priority in our home. My parents understood if we don't prioritize it when our kids are old enough to make their own decisions, God is not going to be important to them. And if you think that the world they're growing up in, even if they're in Christian education, I had a talk with CJ last night. He goes to a Christian school. He told me, I hear swear words all day long. In Christian school, they're not exempt from it. We have a young man in our church who preached a couple Wednesday nights ago who grew up in the same church that I'm in right now, grew up under the Word of God, in the power of God, knew the things of God. His mother is one of the godliest women I know. His grandmother was a godly woman. His dad's not saved, but he grew up in the house of God all of his life. But he didn't prioritize the Lord in his life. Guess what? He goes to college, a secular college. By the time he graduated, he was in depression. Somebody wanted to commit suicide and was questioning if God even existed grew up in the house of God because the influence of the world was so strong against him, it had him question whether God even existed. You can't be passive about that, church. You've got to set the priority. You've got to be the one to determine those things. You can't let your 10-year-old, your 12-year-old, your 14-year-old make that decision. They're too young and immature. They're carnal. They're going to make carnal decisions. It's just the truth. It's your job, it's my job to set those types of examples, to set that precedent in our homes. That's way more important than them having the nicest clothes or anything else. You're laying up a heritage that will carry on and on and on. The Lord spoke to me uh, five years ago. On the Sunday the Lord spoke this to me. I was preaching in Tennessee 
My brother Brad was preaching in Louisiana. Brandon was preaching in Florida. My mother was preaching at a church in Pennsylvania. And my father was preaching at another church in Pennsylvania. Five different places Fontaines were preaching at the same time because of my parents' decision to follow the Lord. And the Lord spoke to me. When that hit me, the magnitude of that hit me, the Lord says, when I return, there will be a Fontaine preaching somewhere. Whether it's the next generation or five generations from now, the Lord has promised me there will always be a Fontaine standing in a pulpit preaching somewhere. I believe it. Because my parents, my dad was a raging alcoholic. He was violent. He was a drug addict. He was not raised in a godly home. He was raised under the hand of, of an abusive alcoholic father. But over 30, almost 40 years ago, he made a decision and said, I'm going all the way with Jesus and changed the entire course of my family history. One man changed the whole course of, of our family's history. That can be you. Well, my parents this, my parents that. So what? You don't have to be that. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm not defined by the sins of my father. Come on, church. I'm done. It's late. I've preached a long time. But I feel like I had to say these things to you today, and I want you to know I love you. But I'm telling you that God wants this church full. And I'm not saying that because that's just what prophets say when they go into churches. I'm telling you, I know the message that is being brought in this church. God wants this church full. There's a message of the kingdom that my generation does not know. They don't know it. Nobody preaches it. I'm just being honest with you. I told them yesterday, I don't preach in any kingdom churches. I preach here in Del Fraser's church. That's the only kingdom churches I preach in. Every church I'm in is Trinitarian or rapture-oriented. I preach everywhere I go. I told them yesterday, they're waiting on the great catching away. They're just ready to get out of here. They're waiting until God comes and catches us all out of here. That's the way every church, is that true? Every church we go in. So you got something special. You have a treasure in your earthen vessel. Amen? Jesus said, I'm going to leave, but you're the light of the world. But if a salt loses its savor, it has no value. You don't take a light, put it under a bushel. No, you set it on a windowsill and you open it up so it illuminates the whole house. That's what you're called to do. In the midst of the darkest hour the world has ever known, you get to shine the light of Jesus even brighter than it's ever shown. That's what you're here for. Arise and shine for your light has come. Amen? Stand to your feet with me. Father, we thank you. And I just want you in your heart, and, and we have music you guys want to play or something, it's fine. I don't have to have that. It's up to you guys. But let's just pray for me. I know the hour's late, but I, we're just going to pray for just a minute. And I don't have to lay hands on a bunch of people. If I feel God tell me to do that, I'll do that. But really, I want you in your own heart. I, I really think for the next couple of minutes, we just need to stop and take our hearts and lay them before the Lord and say, Lord, search me. Lord, search my heart. Is there anything in me? 
Am I allowing covetousness to motivate my decisions? Am I allowing the fear of man or the desire to be, uh, to be uh, accepted? Or am I allowing the pressure to have what everybody else has to, to, to lure me into a place where I put myself in, a, in, in a, a carnal state where I can't hear from you or be used by you? If that's you today, you don't have to stay that way. Just repent. Say, God, forgive me. I had to do that. And you know what I did? My brother-in-law that built a huge house, I sent him a message that said, Hey, love the house. Congratulations. I had to be happy for them. I know that sounds simple, but I did. I had to say, Hey, I'm happy that that happened for you. Good job, man. You're working hard for your family. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. And so there's things that we have to look at and say, God, am I, am I allowing myself to think carnally? Am I allowing myself to put myself under these pressures? Am I measuring the value of my life by these things, these carnal, these earthly things? God, if I am, forgive me, help me. Help me to be spiritually minded. Help me to be kingdom minded. Lord, arrest our hearts today. I just pray right now, and I feel just the heaviness in here. I feel the resistance, but I just want to pray right now that God would just, Lord, soften our hearts right now in Jesus' name. God, that they would go be, look, look beyond the messenger, Lord, and maybe the, my delivery at times, God, and hear the message of your heart, which is, I have more for you. I have more. There is more. You've barely scratched the surface of who I am. There is more. There's a word yet speaking. There's a destiny that's yet calling you. There is yet to be done for the kingdom. I'm not finished. Hear the voice of the Lord in your heart this morning. I have called you with a holy calling. I've apprehended your heart. I've purchased you. I've bought you for a divine purpose. I shed my own blood so that you might have life. But